0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. On today's show we're talking to Francesca Lake from the Future Science Group. They publish journals and were running a series of promotions last week in honour of Open Access Week. So Open Access Week was all about promoting the idea of open access journals whereby anyone and everyone can read scientific journals rather than just those who pay for them or are part of an organization who pay for them. We got onto a whole range of crazy topics, uh, everything from 3D printing organs to AI to the future of scientific research and uh, much, much more. You'll have to listen to find out what. Today's episode is sponsored by Unison, Unison are one of the largest trade unions in the country, and if you want to find out more about what they do to fight to protect workers' rights, uh, consumers' rights, and the NHS, you can follow the link in the description below. So, let's get on with the interview. So, Francesca, thanks for agreeing to talk to us on such short notice. You can shed a little light on what open access is for myself and uh, anyone who chooses to listen. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Hopefully.
2: Hopefully.
0: Um, Yeah, so do do you want to explain a little bit about what what Open Access is and what Open Access Week is? Mm -hmm.
2: So Open Access is essentially what it says. It's the Open Access to, in this case, scholarly research. Um, There are plenty of flavours of Open Access, which is part of its beauty, but also makes it very complicated. Um, There is um, gold Open Access, which means that when we, as a... Publisher release people's research, it's free to view to anyone um, with minimal restrictions on its reuse. So, quite often, people can um, reuse images from it or remix the content depending on the licenses it's, it's published under. There's also green open access, which means its um, research is published behind a paywall for um, an. M- an embargo period uh, which for us is 12 months in the biomedical sciences but it's a lot longer in i think um, the social sciences for example Um, that allows publishers to um, make returns on their import um, for the the embargo period whereas the gold open access version um, authors often pay us up front to provide our services um there's also archives which people are using a lot now which is a form of green open access which is where um, primarily people in the physics and maths fields at the moment will upload their first drafts so that people can read that for free and then anything the then the publishers treat it as a normal manuscript um, so anything they've added value-wise is uh, still with them as it were
0: okay well, it definitely sounds like um, a much better way for getting information out there for people to be able to read, mm-hmm. especially in a day uh, a time when people maybe don't read enough. Yes. <laughs> um, but financially, how does it how does it work for for researchers or for for publishing houses?
2: Mm-hmm. So green open access is free for researchers, as I mentioned. Um, the Publisher makes their return on the time period when the article is behind a paywall, so they're charging subscription fees. Um, gold open access is charged upfront to the authors, who normally pay through their funding. So, for example, um, funders such as the Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Gates Foundation, they require their authors to publish open access and put quite a large amount of funds aside to allow them to do that. Um, Some researchers won't have the funds and most publishers will provide reductions in fee or complete fee waivers for people in, say, countries classified as low income. So it varies, but generally people have access to funds or the publisher will be able to help them out.
0: Do you think that there's still a place for... For journals in you know today's society, where we've got every well almost every piece of information that you could possibly want, at the the touch of a button really mm-hmm. it's all at, at your fingertips.
2: Um, I think the role of journals in the in the scientific process is changing quite a lot, especially in the electronic era, as you say. Um, there's been a lot of debate around the place of Publishers, um, we do add a, a lot of value to the to the process at this time. That um, people have come up with a way to um,
0: what what values that.
2: So um, the not to suggest that you're not. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. So one such thing is the peer review process. So whenever um, we have an article submitted, we will send it out to a number of experts who then provide um, requests to the authors to change things to make it more scientifically sound or clearer um, we will then liaise with the authors to help them make, make those changes to make their article a publishable standard um, and then we will help a lot with the language editing of articles um, and journals also at this time um, are kind of you know if you go to a scientific journal it's correct information I hate to use a buzzword, but there is a lot of fake news.
0: Actually, we we had a, a woman on uh, from the Computational Propaganda Project um, and they've been looking at like, they they call it junk news, mm-hmm. and I think that's such a better f- phrase for it. I'm trying mm-hmm. to use junk news instead of fake news because I think it just gets to, gets much more to the the crux behind what people are talking about when they use the word fake news to describe like false sources i think the junk news just classifies it much better
2: yeah i guess so i mean one we do have to fight against a lot of fake research mm-hmm. so in some aspects fake news would potentially be right but junk news i think is mm-hmm. a good term for it
0: i think i think the word's fake i just i can't get trump pointing at the cnn reporter and saying you're fake news out of my head <laughs> whenever i hear the term so it's kind of ruined for me
1: yeah
2: yeah, no, that is true. <laughs> there is a, for anyone interested in finding out exactly what publishers do, the Scholarly Kitchen released a really nice roundup of over 90 things, I think, that publishers do, um, which a lot of people don't know about, or maybe, yeah, just don't know about. Um, there is still a place for us in the current climate, um, okay. how the relationship will change in the future uh, i can only speculate and one not to speculate so <laughs> we'll see how it evolves.
0: Well I think we've gone from a point where people want all their information for free to a point where people I think are now almost more willing to pay for quality information that they know is quality
1: mm-hmm.
0: because if you look at the way that say the guardian or the new york times or the washington post just to sort of throw out three the big ones that i know that have paywalls the economist as well they like let you see a certain amount for free and then if you want the rest of their Mm -hmm. like journalism you have to pay and i feel like people are becoming more willing to pay for what they think is quality information now than they maybe would have been if you said five or ten years ago i think we've sort of gone from that peak of everything needs to be free online to people being more willing to pay for for high quality content mm-hmm. or or research but um with with open access sort of beginning to permeate journals do you do you see like physical journals disappearing do you see them remaining as like a i don't know like Legacy things, or do you, maybe like getting a vogue in five years, like vinyl has now, or? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, print, I, I personally think print issues are going to go. Um, we barely print anything anymore. Um, it, it artificially, well, it heightens the cost of, of us publishing the content, so we have to keep prices high, and not many people read it anymore um in terms of online i personally see journals maintaining re- journals remaining but potentially not in the guise they currently are so i don't know if you've seen but there's, there's hundreds of journals maybe even thousands um but there's also a lot of services which aggregate content so i don't know whether people will move more towards reading things through their content aggregators mm-hmm. Um, we'll see how that relationship evolves because at the moment a lot of the content aggregators take the readers back to the journal site. So, we'll
0: see. Yeah, that's kind of something, well, it's, it's it's happening in, in print journalism with there's apps like, like Texture that you get where they have thousands of different magazine articles and they, they aggregate them on the app and it's like... People pay like a monthly fee to get access to like thousands of magazines rather than paying for once one subscription. Do you think? Do you think that would actually physically work for journals? Given the amount of money that's required to put into the research and the publishing to begin with, do you think that's viable? Do you think it would just be at like a fairly costly monthly subscription fee, or do you think it would? You know, you find people maybe crowdfunding research.
1: Hmm.
2: crowdfunding is an interesting interesting concept um, I don't know at this point um, if you take there are aggregators of the um, earlier when I mentioned the kind of preprint sides of things um, there are aggregators of preprint so that's pre the production, the publication phase who have received quite a lot of funding from the funders who also currently fund Open Access so they could perhaps shift um, but as I mentioned there are not very many um, there isn't really a way at this point of taking the publishers out of the process so I don't think it could all come through the I don't think the aggregators have the ability at this point to to manage that process Mm -hmm. without the publishers. So I I don't see it at this point. It's not a very clear... Have have you heard of any
0: crowdfunding of of scientific research? Is that a thing? Am I just making that up?
2: I think there's been some. (laughs) um, There's a thing called community science which people are more and more doing. Okay. um, But it's not mainstream. I think one of the things I like the yeah, open access I like about open access is that the public can engage more in science because they can actually read it um no public no member of the public is going to take out a, a whole subscription to a journal that most of it is going to be complete god do to them um a lot of open access journals now have layout abstracts for example so they include summaries that are meant to be readable by the public um so I'm hoping that they'll Get more of an insight into the science that's going on through open access, and then they might become interested in in becoming more involved. And say, for example, add your um, say for example antibiotic resistance. Um, that's something that's a lot of the public are really keen on. So they might be interested in crowdfunding.
0: Mm-hmm. With um, with the open access thing, do you think it's it is aimed at the public getting a better understanding of, of science or do you think it's more aimed at people within the scientific community who maybe don't read as many journals as they would like to because of the cost associated with them? Because um, when you look at what's hap- what happens with, for example, OpenAI, who do a lot of work, that's Elon Musk's firm, and they try and publish everything and make everything open source, all their all their um, research but if I was to go in and and try and read their stuff, it would probably just melt my head <laughs> um because of the level of complexity. Do you think there's like scope for enough of the public to wanna get interested in reading scientific journals because it's there, or do you think people would just i don't know do you think it's more aimed at scientists who are already interested and that just means they don't have to pay for it?
2: Um, I think originally, um, open access grew out of people wanting access, other scientists wanting access to research because, um, subscription fees were getting really high. Um, so a lot of libraries couldn't afford them. So you just couldn't read research. That's what's kind of, um, pushed open access forward over the years. Um, I think opening up science to the public has been more of a byproduct. That people are looking at a lot more now that open access is a lot more mainstream.
0: Okay. So you, do you see your, like a future utopian world where everyone reads their open access journals on the way, on the tube, on the way to work?
2: I mean, that would be great. <laughs> um, I think at this point there is quite a big um, gap between the readability of um, really expert scientific articles um, that most members of the public won't, won't quite get but a lot of um journals are now putting quite a lot of effort into into bridging that gap helping scientists write lay abstracts creating graphical abstracts which lay out more in picture format so i'd have i'd i would i would i i would like and i think it's feasible to see a world where people might read um, an article that says oh um, chocolate cures cancer and then be able to look at the scientific research and understand whether this article that has no particular known source is actually based on something that's real or not. Hmm.
0: Do you think that that move for, for scientists and for researchers is, is a little bit difficult to try and Not dumb down their work, but to try and make it more understandable for the layman. Do you think that that's something that you might find pushback on from maybe older academics or just ones who just want to do their research and, you know, be left alone? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, The journal I publish, we always have lay abstracts with our articles and we ask the authors to write them and then we help them. we help them with the terminology if it's still too complicated. I've never had any pushback from anyone to say, I don't want to do this. Mm. Um, most of the time, they quite enjoy writing it. Um, I try, I explain it to them, like, say, imagine you're explaining your research to a patient or to your mum. How would you say it? And they quite, they don't often think about it like that and they seem to quite enjoy it. So I think it's something that will increase...
0: So they kind of get the, not the thrill, but the, and you, you find sometimes that you get scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson is a fantastic example and Brian Cox or someone who's just, you know, like really charismatic as a, um, hence why they're, they're famous as, as scientists. And they they clearly get like a real thrill out of explaining what they're researching or or learning about to people in a way that Regular people can understand
1: mm-hmm.
0: i i th- I feel like they get a real like buzz off of like getting people to understand like the complexities of of what they're trying to understand so it could it could it could be uh something that scientists really enjoy i don't i don't I can't claim to know a whole lot of scientists aside from the ones I've met at university, and none of them are old enough or grumpy enough yet to uh be <laughs> like hermit researchers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, with the Future Studies Institute, um, how did you get started yourself with publishing open access journals? Was that something you were always passionate about, like throughout your your career, or is it something that you've only come to recently? Um, it's Future Science Group. Future Science
2: Group. Sorry. <laughs> um. So I started my career as a scientist. Um, I Well, not really a career, so I did a master's degree in biology um, as an undergrad, um, which was interesting, and I realised that labs were not for me. Um, I, it's a, a certain kind of person can deal with being in a lab and having research fail and fail and fail. <laughs> um, I just wasn't one of them. I really respect the people who do it. Um, and so I went into publishing as a grad, uh, as a graduate. Um, and I s- developed my interest in open access, um, over time really. So I joined Future Science Group in 2011. And I started working on hybrid journals. Um, so those are the ones behind us that are primarily subscription but have an open access component. Always saw how open access articles were always the most, always the most read. Um, they always had the most impact online um for obvious reasons really um and then the company chose to launch its first open access journal in 2015 and i i stepped up to take that job on um which was really interesting um because we we were essentially moving into a brand new business model um and i've just really enjoyed learning about it ever since um I personally think open access is, is the way forward um, although that remains to be seen completely okay. um, we'll see how, how that that landscape evolves so
0: that's certainly the direction that information is moving but how do you, so how how would you to kind of go to like how you get people interested in reading their first open access bit of research do you think it's Something that needs to be sparked at an educational level, just like an interest in science, because I know I find like since I've left school and university and things, looking back on what we'd be like, what we'd have been studying or, you know, learning about bits and pieces since, or, you know, watching Neil deGrasse Tyson and be like, geez, why didn't my physics teacher explain it like that? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's it's something that needs to be pushed harder? Because so Brian Cox, actually, I mentioned him, he, he he is doing a lot of work about trying to get the scientific method to be like a really huge part of the curriculum
1: mm-hmm.
0: in teaching people critical thinking skills and the idea of peer review and checking and checking and checking and constantly trying to prove yourself wrong. And that's the only way you get to the correct answer. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's something that needs to be kind of pushed at educational levels or do you think that once open access journals potentially become more widely distributed more of a common a knowledge more just more of a a common practice within the industry that people will sort of naturally gravitate towards them or which way do you think it is?
2: I think, that, I think there's a big need for more science communication um, to encourage people to read read scientific research there are a lot of new sites now which um, write quite quite in quite a nice way and actually cite where the research is coming from i think we need more of that um i definitely think we need more focus on um, learning how to do how, how science works in schools um i'm, I'm aware of a few projects ongoing to to kind of do that which is really good to see um so, I mean, personally, I read a lot of open access articles while I was a student because I wanted to stay at home and not go to the library. Um, so I think in terms of people who are going into a scientific career, they will always be pro-open access. Um, i keen to read it because they've learned about it from being a student. Um, but I, I do think we need more science communication to get that, Get the information out to out to the public and get and get them interested.
0: Mm. If you had to pitch it to someone, why should you love science in, in school? What would you say?
2: Oh, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, I mean, I've always really loved science because I always wanted to know why. Mm. I mean, I was always fascinated by how does my heart beat. How? Why am I alive? <laughs> <laughs> How on like a
0: on like a, a physical, like biological level or like a philosophical oh, level? Oh
2: physical. I've always been a, a, a <laughs> physical sciences person. Um <laughs> sort of how you get from being an embryo to an actual fully fledged human being. Mm. Um that that was always well what fascinated me. So anyone who's interested in why why anything is as it is mm. I mean even philosophical stuff. It's still sci. It's still science, and there are really interesting reasons. I, for I, I
0: know several professors who would probably disagree with you. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't pretend to particularly understand philosophical uh,
1: reasoning. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm some of it goes
0: over my head. My girlfriend mm-hmm. does philosophy, so uh, <laughs> I get to I get to hear some of it. Some of it's fascinating. and Some of it just confuses me. <laughs> Like she had to do, a, she she came home after doing a class one day. It was why is a chair a chair? What makes a chair a chair? Yeah, like like a full class about that. Oh. <laughs> okay. I was just like, I, I I I you know I I had some pretty pointless law lectures in my time, but. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's not my that's not my bag. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, but. Yeah, talking about the 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 why thing, I I was kind of thinking about it or last night actually, and I can't remember what someone said to me, but they they were talking about something. They just said like a fact to me, and I was like, I really don't like. They, they, I need someone to explain why a fact is a fact, and before I'll accept it as a fact. Yeah. Like if someone says, "Oh yeah," um, like you, you need two grams of salt or whatever a day what the, the recommended dosage is now or, you know, you need six hours of sleep for to have a good night's sleep or, you know, don't drink too much coffee, the caffeine's bad for you. I have to, I have to be like, why? Like, what? Are you sure? Why? Why is that?
1: Yeah.
0: I think it's, it's something that we'd probably be in a much better position as a society if we asked why a bit more, but...
2: <laughs> mm, yeah, I do think we need to be, there needs to be more encouragement to do that.
0: Yeah, it's a you wanna you wanna teach critical thinking. But uh, so in the in the journal that you sort of what's your official role in? I'm a
1: managing editor. You're the
0: managing editor, mm-hmm. okay. So what sort of things get yeah, published in your journal?
2: So we publish anything that can have any role in human health. So um that can be anything from information about drugs to um t- 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 clinical trials at the bedside um all the way back to um finding out whether some some snail has a particular compound in it that could that could at some point be used to treat um heart disease so the whole spectrum of biomedical research which is really fun um
1: yeah,
0: you must get I like a whole a whole wide range of different different things you get to
1: mm-hmm. get
0: to publish well, what's what's the the craziest like most outlandish um, <sighs> bit of bit of research you've ever published in the journal um, some of
1: it can be very outlandish <laughs> I trying
2: to think. I mean, it depends where you're coming from. The researchers who published it probably didn't think it was outlandish. Mm-hmm. Um, the most controversial thing I published was a commentary on um, why on the, the need for a, a revolution in psychiatry. Research in what way um this person was commenting on the fact that it's not there's not a huge amount of evidence based medicine uh, evidence based research in the profession at okay. this point, and that generated a huge amount of debate I mean, I was a bit unsure what was
0: this what was this premise that there isn't a lot of evidence based research in psychiatry Like, what is is it is it that he's, that things are based more on not hearsay but like established, like practices, and no one's really doing any new research on things, or what was his reasoning?
1: Um,
2: there was there was quite a bit of reasoning. Okay. I'd recommend reading the article to okay. anyone. I don't want to summarise it wrong because it was so controversial.
0: What was it called? And we'll put it in the description.
2: Um, in search of an evidence-based role of psychiatry, for psychiatry.
1: Okay.
2: I recommend a read. It's a really interesting article. We, um, there was potential issues with publishing it, but as a journal word, we tried to remain unbiased. So it was scientifically sound argument, so it got published. And we're completely, if anyone um, is not in agreement with the authors, we are completely open to people writing in. They can write a, le- a letter to the editor, which we can publish as well. Um, that's what we're here for, to open discussion. Um, and something else we, we published that was really interesting was um, um, a commentary on why animals are still needed in research. Okay. Which is, again, a really controversial t- topic. It was from actually a Nobel a Nobel laureate and one of her colleagues. Um Essentially, saying we're still not there yet. Um, there are plenty of research lines ongoing to reduce or, or replace the need for animals in research, but we're not there yet, and we can't just stop research. So that was a really interesting piece.
0: Hi, where are we on that actually?
2: So that's some of the hot topic research that's ongoing at the moment. So, I recently published a special issue on organs on chips. Um, so essentially, you create a little microchip that's got enough of an organ built onto it to simulate how that organ would react if you treat it with a drug.
0: So like a physical organ with a microchip?
2: The the, the, the microchip with cells on it.
0: Yeah. How, how big are we talking, like, like a handful of cells or?
2: Um, enough cells to simulate like the layering of an organ. Okay. So for example, kidney, you've got loads of layers. Hmm. Um, and they're about a few centimeters big.
1: Okay. And then
2: you can also link them up to create a human chip. Okay. And then you can um, create blood flow. And you can see how the drug interacts with each of the organs. Okay. It's really interesting, but it is not far enough yet to mm. replace animals in research. Okay. That's really cool.
0: That sounds really interesting. Because yeah. I've, I've I've always been sort of interested in how, like, if we could just... I don't know where I stand ethically on whether if, like, we could grow, like, either brain-dead organs or just... or brain-dead, like animals or people or just organs by themselves like what what are what are we morally able to do to them <laughs> mm.
2: yeah i went to a conference um a little while ago on um, on biomaterials and i went to a talk where someone was saying that theoretically we could print a heart in 30 minutes mm. and print a human in yeah a i've hours. seen
0: i've seen like 3d printed like I th- was it? Was it? Was either kidney? Maybe it was bladder, or something, mm-hmm. something that they were planning to go to trial with soon. But I think maybe it was a, was it a
1: pancreas.
0: I need to look that up. Yeah. <laughs> but they three D printed an organ. That was the, that. Mm-hmm. That was the main crux of it. And they, I, I'm really, really interested to see how quickly we get there, because once, once you solve that the problem with your body getting old then the only thing you have to worry about is the mind and i'm i'm honestly curious to see whether that does anything to to life expectancy because obviously what you've got like a life expectancy has increased like massively but that's not it's not like everyone was used to live to the like 50 and then you die. You either like die at like five or 10 as like a child or maybe in war or through some, I don't know, just your village getting raided or, you know, you get executed for something. There was just a lot more killing in general, (laughs) um, in, in the past. And, and people still lived to like 60, 70, 80, 90, but there was just more barriers to overcome in terms of staying alive, and that we kind of removed a lot of those barriers, and that medicine mm-hmm. hasn't pushed us as far as people maybe think because of the the way the average works. But okay. that I know we're we're kind of not leveling out, but we're that 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 upward trend is kind of starting to curve a little bit. In that scientists feel that there's potentially a a limit to how old we can get. Mm-hmm. And I'm inter- I'm really interested to see at what point three D printing of organs means that the only thing we have to worry about is the mind. And I mean, do you think we're we how how far off do you think we are from three D printed organs?
2: I think having I think the idea of transplanting a three D organ into somebody isn't is is far off for a lot of people, but it isn't far off in terms of scientific research, which always takes ages to get into into. The clinic anyway. Um, I think the idea of printing people enough to keep them alive for longer, I think that is a very long way off. If, if it's ever going to happen, there's so many ethical implications that we'd mm. have to overcome. Um, with
0: the ethical thing though, someone, someone, I think it was Jill rogan I was listening to the podcast with the guy who made that Icarus film about the doping in, in athletics. And how widespread it is, and how the Russians have done it in the Sochi Olympics, and, and he 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 essentially made the point that yeah we can sit and debate the ethical and moral ramifications of it, but China and Russia aren't going to they're they're going to do it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was rumored research. I don't know whether it when it was going is going ahead or not. where they wanted to transplant someone's head. um... I mean, I guess if that works, then you could you could theoretically three D print someone's body, Um, and if if the three D printed body would then work, but we're we're not close to that yet. No, who knows? Ethics is a tricky subject.
0: Well, that's the next bullshit job. Ethicists. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a real thing. Like a lot a lot of companies are starting to hire ethicists for. The, the ethical ramifications because they think millennials are really concerned about the the you know morality and being a good person and you know all that rubbish uh, <laughs> 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 um, but um with you know what what's what are you working on at the moment in in the next is there any anything interesting that's coming out with the next issue of your open access journal or
2: I mean, well, most of the stuff on my next issue is actually already online because okay. we publish and then make
0: like a compilation. Yeah. So I think. Okay.
2: So um there's some interesting things in there about um new ways of looking for um biomarkers of cancer to try and pick it up earlier than mm. we do now, which is always always a good idea. Um
0: like, Have you seen the, the, the AI research that's being done with machine learning and cancer?
2: I haven't,
1: yeah. So
0: essentially what they're doing is they take like 10,000 MRI scans or just thousands and thousands of, mm-hmm. of people with them without cancer and they get the, this machine learning algorithm to learn to spot where cancerous growths are. And after they did that, it became Infinitely better than a human doctor. I'm not surprised. <laughs> at, at spotting, like, yeah. like really, like really minuscule, tiny, tiny tumors. And, and ultimately that's, that's probably the way things are going to go in, because as soon as it, technology becomes more proficient than the, than people,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's when you're going to start and see it proliferated. And they're probably going to be pushed back with, Okay, so now you're just replacing all doctors that, or that idea anyway, but I, I'm really interested to see like how far machine learning can, can take us in, in just like scientific and medical research in general. I think it's going to be, I think you could almost get to the point where the only things that humans are required for in medicine are the, is the, the, not the nurse's job, but like that sort of personal touch. I, I feel that that, that, that's probably the, the reality because yeah they're already bet- machines are already better at cancer as soon as you get them that's just one algorithm and they just run it And it didn't take them like a specific, particularly lengthy amount of time it was just done with um, Google's Deep Mind mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're starting to put it into trials like all over um, the world now and it's I, I just think it's a it's a crazy crazy exciting time to be in your profession you you must begin to see some some really amazing research being done and some some pretty crazy ideas yeah or at least things that you, you maybe wouldn't have thought were possible 10 years ago
1: oh definitely mm.
0: like sometimes i have to pinch myself it's like wow we're we're really in the future like my friend was building, uh, like a USB hub for his laptop with a wireless charger built in last night. And he was like, yeah, just order this all on Amazon. All of this technology, all of, like USB ports, all the wires. He was, he had no idea how to do it. He was just on, on Google, just like figuring out how to do it as it went along. And yeah, <laughs> it's just like, we do, we do kind of live in the future.
1: Yeah,
2: I think you can buy DNA, so you can sync it on Amazon now.
0: And the cost of, I think, the cost of like sequencing the human genome has gone from like a couple of million to a couple of thousand in the last ten years. Like that, yeah. So, what yeah, do you? How far do you think we are from from like you were saying, three D printing like people's people's bodies to be?
2: I mean, they think they're fairly close to being able to say three D print um, some skin back like directly over a wound with all the all the layers and the hef the hef follicle was causing a lot of issues. Really? Um but I think creating like a heart so complex. Mm. Um I think that's further off. Um, and something like a brain, I mean, I don't think they've thought about that yet. Well, they have probably thought
1: about
0: it. Oh, people have I mean... definitely thought about it. But then, <laughs> if you were going to do a brain, I think, I don't think it would be like fleshy. I think you would just, I think if they get to the point where they can 3D print a brain, that means they understand absolutely everything that's going on inside there. And there's no way they take the biological option because the, so, uh, if you were able to like simulate or like create a, a computer network that had the same power as the human brain like just all the the same sequencing everything just in but like in a computer form it would be thousands of times faster than a human brain just because technological circuits are quicker than biological ones so if you if you got if you had a an ai sam harris talks about this a lot if you got, if you had an AI that had literally just a, the equivalent of a human intelligence and a human brain, then it would be doing the equivalent of twenty thousand years of human thought in a week. So something tells me they would probably pick the the computer, okay. <laughs> the, the technical option rather than the the biologically grown brain at that point.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, <laughs> that's out of my got no knowledge about that kind of thing so
0: <laughs> that's fair it's 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 a pretty crazy thought like yeah i don't, I don't even know if if you can get your head around like it like actually get your head around how, how, how mad twenty thousand years of human thought in a week is
2: i think it's going to be fairly impossible for anyone to do that because you can't comprehend it
0: no it's it's i mean he sam harris when he talks about it he's super, super, super worried. He's like a merchant of doom a little bit with AI. <laughs> he's just he's just like, how do we deal with this? Like, are we actually... Like, like, look how people deal with intelligence now in people. How are you going to deal with something that, that you can't even begin to comprehend? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you're, when you post-truth, how do you deal with a being incapable of saying anything else?
1: <sighs>
0: Not to... Put you on edge, don't like to be don't be losing sleep over it. I don't think we're quite there yet.
2: I mean, I've seen I've seen iRobot. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, but iRobot he wins. Will Smith Will Smith wins. He beats the he beats the the AI. I just.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think that would actually happen, would it? But... Have you seen Ex Machina? Yes.
0: That is ter- I think that's way more terrifying than iRobot.
2: That film is really disturbing.
0: Not to give any spoilers, but. It's just terrifying. I was watching like a four-hour interview with Sam Harris talking about AI, and then went and watched that film, Mm -hmm. and I just spent the whole thing being like, "He's right, we're screwed."
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're only we're only screwed if we actually take that path, although it feels like
0: well, we
1: probably will.
0: (laughs) The uh, Elon Musk and Sam Harris are both kind of of the opinion that as long as humanity doesn't die. Like, or we we don't have some like extinction level event. The technological pro progress, no matter how slow, will eventually lead to the point where we can simulate the human brain. And at that mm. point, you've got that crazy twenty thousand years of of thought, and then it's just increases like it can improve itself exponentially. And then,
1: yeah, you have to hope it's nice.
0: Yeah, <laughs> just got to build it with uh, emojis. And then it'll be fine. <laughs> at least, at least it'll be saying nice things in pictures for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, uh, to, yeah, to get back to, um, your, your science rather than, than scaring everyone with AI. Uh, <laughs> is there, um, something that you are really passionate about in, in science? Is there, do you have like a specific area of expertise?
2: Um, no, so my degree was just in, but I just did an undergrad degree in biology and then a, a master's degree in biology. I spent my master's lab project sequencing the mitochondrial DNA of a cattle population in Africa, which was pretty interesting. Um, but my degree was so general; I've always had quite a general interest in science. I like seeing where it all fits together, mm. um, which um, supports my knowledge on my, with my with my new journal. My Plaxos journal because I get to see everything in biomedical. I mean, I would say my passion is in biomedical, um, things. Although I do also really, really enjoy physics, um, watching boring Cox and everything. Yeah. It's always really good. Um, and I just, my passions kind of follow what the breaking research that's ongoing. So as we mentioned earlier, the organ on a chip stuff. That makes me. That's really, I find that really exciting, yeah. and um, the ability to test for all sorts of cancers by just taking someone's blood and test and finding finding it early when it's treatable. Mm. Um, that kind of thing really gets me excited.
0: Do you think? Do you think we're far off getting the the cure for the big C?
2: Oh, the cure is a different matter, um, or at least
0: a treatment that's like more effective than or less invasive perhaps is a better word than chemotherapy?
2: That's the target at the moment. A huge amount of research is going into it. But the problem is that every tumour is different. Mm. And within each tumour there's a variety of population of cells. So it's been like antibiotic resistance. You can kill a bunch of a bunch of the cancer cells, but then there'll be some that just evolve because that's what a tumour is, it's rapidly evolving cells um, that will evolve, that won't be, that will be resistant to the, the therapy. And then it'll come back, um, it'll get worse, then you have to do a new therapy, and then eventually you'll run out of digital, different therapies. So the target really at the moment is um, personalised medicine. So being able to tell from a person, a person's tumour, say, exactly what what combination of drugs that's also the, um, I say it's the new thing, but it's been the new thing for a while combining drugs so that you hit every cell in the tumour.
0: Mm. So, so tumours are more, I'm, I'm aware cancer is kind of like a catch all term for things, but so tumours are incredibly like different mm. than depending on obviously, like, it depends on the area of the body, like, you, you can have like different like levels of aggression of tumours. Yeah, is that, is that is that the right way of mm-hmm. describing it? Yeah. yeah, and you can get obviously ones that develop more rapidly. And it, what would you say that people who sort of proliferate the idea that that cancer is we haven't got a cure because it's more profit to treat rather than cure?
2: I'd say that's probably <laughs> Um There is cancer is one of the most funded things. Um, most funded oh, research and the charities in, in that area are able to fund a huge amount of research themselves. Um, it is because they're so complicated. One person's brain tumour is completely different to another person's brain tumour. I think there was a news story recently on the BBC that, um, there's a range of thousands of genes that can mutate to cause a cancer and you only need two. Of those genes, we need to find out which genes have mutated. Some genes will cause the cancer to, the cancer cells to proliferate faster, which means you've got more chance of more mutations. Some of them will cause them to, um, to make the cells live longer. Um, it, there's a huge range, and the the, the the therapies we have available generally target specific parts of the tumor specific proteins on the tumour cell surface, for example. If a cell doesn't have that protein, then it's not going to kill it. So you need to find out exact the exact information okay. about each person's tumour cells before you can actually kill it.
0: Okay. Because I, I know that I saw, well, this could be out of date, but I, knew, I know I read a year or two ago that Despite like all the research that's gone into what causes cancer and the number of different stories you see every week about red wine causes cancer, red wine prevents cancer, mm-hmm. chocolate causes, you know, the, the sort of story. Um, but the, the biggest factor was still genetics and luck.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that kind of blew my mind a little bit and, you know, made me frantically start searching my family tree and. <laughs>
2: That's interesting. I mean, again, the genetics depends on the cancer. We had a talk here the other day for it was breast cancer awareness. Um, we had a, a a lady come in and she, she was saying that for breast cancer, genetics is actually quite a small reason. A, a small reason for people get for people having breast cancer. It's actually more to just to do with age. With that one. Okay. Um, so again it really depends on the cancer as to what the predisposition factors are for lung cancer is it's really smoking
1: and
2: other inhaled things
1: mm. so
2: right. essentially everything will be bad for you at some point
1: so.
0: yeah. I, I, just the whole the whole topic of human health is, is kind of mind-blowing, I have a friend who's quite sort of diet conscious and is really into his nutrition and everything. And I just, I feel like I've, I've got the opinion of a lot of people and you, you go, well, I, I want to know exactly what I should be eating, but where do I start? <laughs> like what do you, do you not like? Obviously there's, you know, lots of fresh food. Don't eat loads of red meat. Don't eat loads of sugar. Don't eat loads of like trans fats
1: and, mm-hmm.
0: you know, try and steer towards like, Healthy fats, not too much protein, but protein, fruit and vegetables like that sort of thing. I just find it like such an overwhelming area of um, science to try and delve into because there's like if you Google what should I be eating, there's a billion different articles that will tell you all the opposite things, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like they might be different, like, ketogenic diets or people trying to con- convince you that. Plant-based diet is the best, or there's people who are all raw food. That's the best. Mm-hmm. I just, I really struggle to to get my head around which ones. Where where do you even begin with 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 things like that?
2: Well, theoretically, you want to go back to the scientific journals because <laughs> they'll be the ones publishing the research that should theoretically be less biased, mm-hmm. and therefore should be sound however i'm aware that um a lot of people react differently to diets so it depends on who you are so again there's no winning winning either
1: way
0: what um what like major disease do you think that we're closest to getting a cure to or at least like a better treatment to of like cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, like that sort of thing, dementia, like those, like the big ones that are kind of...
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That is a hard question. Um, there's so much research being pub- being being published in all those fields, so much money being pumped into it. I would like to think that diabetes might be the closest one out of those three, mm-hmm. um, because... There's a lot more people can be doing um, to prevent that, and there is it's a little easier to research because unlike cancer, it's not loads of different things in one category. Um Alzheimer's is difficult because we still don't fully understand the brain. Um, infectious diseases are always going to be the earliest ones that we can that we can cure. and uh, they have been the, the ones that we've cured historically. Um, so they're probably your next ones, but well, when we start when you start thinking about the big ones,
1: it's it's difficult to say.
0: Yeah, but Alzheimer's. I saw that they, they're trying. They've like trialed, um, ultrasound on the brain to get rid of the like brain plaques that you get mm-hmm. that build up that that are part of what causes it. But then obviously, like you said, we don't quite understand the brain, so that that I, that's kind of a maybe a hit and hope.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess so I think the key there is early picking it up early again mm-hmm. and figuring out how to treat it but people who have Alzheimer's typically I think it's five years before you actually start to show mm-hmm. symptoms so we need blood tests
0: yeah it's not good can you can you get a blood test for Alzheimer's?
2: Um, that's something that's been worked on
0: okay there's research and stuff into it mm, yeah mm-hmm. How early can you catch it with that? Do you know? Do you, I know, don't the, know. you don't know the research well enough. Fair enough. I can't expect you to be an expert <laughs> in all areas of, of, of biomedical science.
2: I'm, I know a, a small amount about a lot
1: of different fields. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I can't, I can't fault you. Jack of all trades myself. So. I'm always amazed when, when people are like encyclopedic encyclopedic knowledge about like a certain topic it baffles me it's like how much did you have to read to get to this level of knowledge
1: yeah
0: they amaze me especially professors like professors who just they, they can remember studies from 30 years ago off the top of their head and you're just like have you been quitting that for 30 years and that's why you remember or is it because? <laughs> <laughs> who knows <laughs> yeah. But then, yeah, just to, to wrap up, is there, is there anything you wanted to sort of mention that you were working on, um, at the moment? Is there anything that you're doing event-wise for Open Access Week or?
2: Um, so, Open Access Week's really exciting. (coughs) Um, happens every year. It's, it's 10th year this year, I think. Um, it's essentially a global event to promote understanding and interest in open access. As I mentioned at the start, um, it's quite complicated. Um, Even scientists don't always understand that the the difference between green and gold open access and which funder requires them to do which thing. There's loads of rules that they have to meet. So it's essentially a week long event full of many events aimed at promoting open access, trying to drive it forward as a thing and helping people understand it. this year's theme is Open in Order To, so it's trying to get people to talk about why publish open access. Um, we, there are a load of um, accepted things, such as facilitating collaboration. Someone who's working in biophysics won't have access to oncology journals, so no. if they want to read the research then and potentially cl- collaborate with p- specific researchers, in, uh, open access helps. Um, It's to drive people being able to read it who are in lower income countries, who don't have the library subscriptions, etc. There are many reasons why someone might, might publish open access. So what we're doing is we're having researchers submit short 30 second videos just talking about exactly why... They support open access to try and help people talk about it and think about open access in a, in a different way because there's plenty of people out there who still only publish open access because their funders taught them to. Um, so we kind of want people to to want to do it more
0: if you had a, if you had like a an elevator pitch to a scientist listening right now who you know, very much loves his traditional journals, how would you pitch open access to him? or
1: her mm-hmm.
2: um well i would say we see um we see um even a 1000 times readership advantage for open access articles mm-hmm. in like a thousand fold, fold over mm-hmm. wow okay. that's only in some fields but that, that that is true for some of our journals um so you're reaching a much bro- much broader audience um you can get a lot of people ch- chattering about it online which means that you might have we might generate new, new ideas um, from their discussion you might find new collaborators um, and open access journals as a whole can generally publish things that are slightly more off the wall and in, 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 innovative so if someone's doing something really breakthrough mm-hmm. you will occasionally get that research pushed back from the traditional journals, you might want to be a bit more safe, and then you can be, open access journals are generally more op- open to it, mm. um, it's just how it is, um, so it can be a really exciting place to publish, I like to think. Um, <laughs> not that you're biased. Yeah, totally not biased. <laughs> <laughs> so, that would be my pitch. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, um, thank you very much for, for chatting to us.
2: Okay. Right, thanks for coming in.
0: Yeah, no problem. Definitely, definitely an interesting chat. I'm always, always up to hear about the future of science, <laughs> <laughs> or the future of publishing science in this case.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope you've got some stuff that you can use. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. thanks very much for listening if you enjoyed the interview you can subscribe to us on youtube or on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts you can follow us on facebook twitter you know you could leave us a review on itunes or just tell your friends about what a fantastic podcast you just listened to so don't forget to subscribe and until next time thanks for listening